0: Welcome to the Dearly Woven Podcast. I'm your host, Casey Dow. This is the podcast all about making with fiber and the sheep who grow the wool we love to create with. Hi everyone. I hope you're ready. I have a double whammy for y'all today. For episode 17, you are going to hear from two amazing women. They both raise caracal sheep. First, you will hear from Babette Turk from California. She was interested in the caracals when first looking into getting sheep, but they were hard to find on the west coast. So she had quite a few other breeds of sheep before finding and adding caracals to her flock, and ultimately decided to sell her other breeds and raise caracals exclusively. And then, next up, you will hear from Letty Klein, who has been raising caracals since 1982 and is the co-author of the book The Shepherd's Rug. Now, before we get into the interviews, if you all have a moment and have been enjoying listening to the podcast, I would absolutely love if you could leave me a rating on Apple Podcast. It helps others to find the podcast and continue to help the word get the word out about these awesome breeds of sheep. I would greatly appreciate it, and of course, if you are crafting while listening or even out doing barn chores and want to take a picture and tag me in it on Instagram, I would love it. Alrighty, now let's get into the first interview with Babette. Hi, Babette. Thank you for joining me on the podcast
1: today. Well, thank you for inviting me. This is quite an honor.
0: Well, and can you start off by sharing a little bit about yourself and how you came to start raising the Caracol sheep?
1: Well, um, my name is Babette Turk. The, my ranch, and that's kind of a misnomer. It's not as big as you would imagine a ranch to be. It's called Hexenwald Ranch, and um the reason I called it Hexenwald Branch, my background is German, and when I saw the forest that surround the property, it reminded me of an enchanted forest. And so Hexenwald, which the literal translation means forest of the witches, a better translation would be enchanted forest. And so that's why I called this place Hexenwald Branch. Bought it in 2013, moved from the suburbs. I own my own business, so it doesn't matter really where I'm located. You know, I can keep that income stream going, and really at this point, my farm is kind of a money pit. Although I'm hoping to figure a, out a way to to break even. Uh, I have currently I have Caracool sheep, Hunda livestock, dog guardian dogs, um, chickens, Muscovy ducks, turkeys. I have Havana rabbits. Hopefully, I'm not missing out. Oh, and I have many Nubian goats. I didn't start out that way. So started out with a couple goats. And that's all I thought I wanted to have. But my husband said, well, why not sheep? Now, my husband's from from Turkey. Okay. And so I thought, okay, well, obviously if he wants sheep, then I should go find out what kind of sheep they have over there. So I did my research and found out that, you know, the most popular sheep in the region that he's from is a broad tail sheep. So a broad tail sheep is a sheep that carries its fat in its tail. And so it has a very lean body and the fat is carried in the tail. And I guess you can talk to a biologist or whatever, how that helps them in the heat. But you'll find a lot of animals from that region carry their fat in a certain area. Like, for example, the camel has the hump and all of the fat of of the camel is in that hump. It's it's kind of their storage. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So I need to find a broad tail sheet. Start looking here uh, in the United States and i learned that there was a breed here called caracol could not find any um there there was a registry with some breeder names and i call and i called each one of them on the west coast they were all elderly they sold their flocks I, I just couldn't find any so i started looking at other breeds um and i because i wasn't willing to transport a sheep from the east coast mm-hmm. Uh, so I looked at Merinos, Icelandic, Churro, BFL, actually I purchased all of them. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I would not recommend that. I, I think if you have sheep, it's much easier, easier on you if you just stick to one breed, get active in the association, really get your breeding plan in place, um, and really focus within that community it's just too much with all of these breeds to really give each one of these breeds you know the the concentration that it needs so um, i don't know in which order i purchased them but you know every time i would look online at at a spinning group or something and they would say oh i love this merino or this is awesome bfl or you know the icelandic is the sheep of the vikings you know they're original viking sheep you know they can trace their genetic back back 100% to the Vikings. I thought, wow, how romantic is that? Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you have the Navajo Churro, which are so adapted to the region that I'm in, which is sort of like a Mediterranean climate here. So Navajo Churro can manage Mediterranean. They can manage, you know, the really hot, arid temperatures of Arizona, really suited to this area. And I found excellent breeders for all of them. I mean, the top breeders. And I purchased them. <laughs> and then I found Caracal sheep. I found a breeder of Caracal sheep way up in um, Washington State on the Canadian border. And I convinced her to sell some to me. And you'll find with Caracal sheep, the breeders they're very picky about who they sell to. So it, you know, it took some convincing. I'm not a fly-by-night, you know, organization. That I'm going to put fully concentrate on this breed. And so I was able to get some greetings. stuff. So drove up there with my mattress van, and I had set up a little cage at the back. It's called Zotote. And I stayed overnight on the way up, you know, just for a break in the drive. But on the way down, it was straight. I was in Bakersfield in the middle of the night with the back of my mattress van open with sheep looking out, <laughs> eating a hamburger, uh, trying to make it down to Santa Cruz, which was where I lived. Uh, I think that was 24 hours without sleep. My son helped me, but oh, <laughs> that, wow. was, that was how I first got my initial breeding stock. So because my husband, that was the breed of the heritage of my husband, that's why I finally chose to stick with the cariboules. And I'm, and I'm so glad I did because they are one, and I think there's one other breed called the Awassi. that's a broad-tailed sheep in the United States, and they really need our support. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I, was, I decided, okay, I'm going to go all in with the Caracools. wonderful commu- um, registration community, like an alliance community uh, that gave me a lot of support through them. I found more breeders, like breeders, there are breeders out there, but they are very secretive and no one knows about them, but they pop up. You'll hear from a shearer, for example. Oh, you have those fat tailed sheep. I just sheared some up in so-and-so. I'm like really, will you give me the name? No he swore me to secrecy, so My I don't know Goodness. <laughs> but slowly it's kind of coming out.
0: do you think there's a reason why they're so secretive yeah
1: well there well there is okay, so the people that are very secret about secretive of their flocks are generally people from the Middle East and they serve the Middle Eastern community oh God gotcha. so and the 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 tale of the tail of the caracool is highly prized in their culinary tradition. So they want to kind of keep a a lid on the market. Mm -hmm. You know, they want to keep their prices high for this particular sheep. And the best way to do that is not have everybody breeding them. Gotcha. So that's my theory. And then again, it's just they don't have the time and they don't have the energy and they just don't want to deal with it. That might be another theory. Mm -hmm. But, I, you know, I am very happy to sell breeding stock, so I want more people interested in me sheep. So I went, I went all in with the Caracool, I sold my Merino, sold my Icelandic, sold my Navajo Churro, sold my BFL, and just brought my Caracools down to really core, a core uh, breeding group that all of, had all of the characteristics that I wanted. And so that was my start. Now, what is your flock size currently? My core breeding group was 10 sheep, so nine ewes and a ram, but now I have 11 little babies running around, oh. so we're up to 21. <laughs> okay. I don't think I'm going to keep any of them. I have a lot of buyers uh, for the little ones, um, and they're mostly rams. I think I got three ewes out of it. So the ewes will probably go to breeding stocks to a new owner along with a, ra- a suitable ram. And I have a couple of people that are looking for new rams for their breeding stocks because you don't want inbreeding. So every so often they, they switch out their ram.
0: Mm-hmm. And what is your setup like when it comes to fencing? And I think, I know you mentioned livestock guardian dogs for security from predators for your flock. So what is your setup like?
1: Uh, I have a couple fields and they only have four foot fences and they're topped with hot wire. And um, before I got the livestock guardian dogs. I just, like I said, I just had goats. I knew there was a mountain lion problem in the area, but in their enclosure, I made eight foot fences topped with barbed wire and I locked them up at night. Well, the mountain lions, they knew when I locked up at night and one day they just came earlier. Oh, Actually, they're they they hunt by themselves, so it was one. Uh, I didn't hear a commotion, I just went down to do my usual lockup and I heard nothing, which was a concern, right? So, right. my German Shepherd came with me, she starts going crazy and she takes off into the woods. I hear her doing the whole bark up at a tree, and I go and investigate. There's a huge mountain lion, I mean, double the size of my German Shepherd. And I thought, what am I, gonna do? that's it. And here's my favorite goat dying. Oh,
0: no. What am I
1: going to do? Can't have animals. I don't know what to do. Until my husband, who is, like I mentioned, from Turkey, said, well, in Turkey, we have these dogs, they're called kungals, and we just let them go with the animals and nothing ever happens. And so I found one. And a year later, I found a second one. And they had a litter and I kept one of those. So now I have three kungal dogs and they're out in the field with my sheep and my goat. I don't lock up at all. They lamb and kid in the field, and mountain lions don't come around. Coyotes don't come around. I don't have a problem with uh, the crows or vultures or whatever that I some of my friends have coming down and trying to attack the babies when they're first born. They take care of all of that. They're just amazing. I sleep so well because I have livestock garden dogs. <laughs> it just takes the all the worry out of everything.
0: That's amazing. And I mean, I guess it's just their presence. And do you ever hear them out there barking and kind of keeping things away?
1: Yes, Uh, they will absolutely bark if something's out of the ordinary. Certain breeds will use barking all the time. Like they'll be barking all night long. Anything they hear, they're going to bark. But these, the Kungals, because they're also used in the villages of Turkey, they'll only bark when there's something serious. So if I hear some barking outside, I know that there's probably a mountain lion walking by just out the fence and I know they do this because I see them on the um, the cameras so they'll they know exactly where the fencing is they know where the dogs can't get them and then they'll just walk by you know and they'll find deer. Thank goodness yes <laughs> not any of my sheep or my goats. Yes, not your livestock. Right, and of course if if a coyote ever jumps in with those dogs, my bit first concern would be that coyote is rabbit because you know it, it has to be it would have to be out of its mind mm-hmm. to jump in with those dogs they're They're pretty lethal,
0: right, right, yes, I've seen some videos of livestock guardian dogs taking down coyotes like it's nothing now, I know the caracal breed can be a triple purpose breed for fiber and meat and milk. So what is your primary purpose for raising them?
1: All three of those. So now the meat is very different from regular sheep because they don't have the fat on their body. So the taste is very different. Um, I don't know how to describe it, but when I tasted it, I was like, where have you been all my life? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I thought all sheep taste like this, you know, when, which was the type of sheep that had, you know, carried the fat on the body. Um, usually from New Zealand or Australia. That's the only ty- type that I'd ever eaten, and this just—they tasted so different. I—I I would hazard a guess. Now, they, I've heard that people say that Icelandics are outstanding as far as taste goes too. Well, I've had Icelandic, and I've had Navajo churro, and I've had Caracol, and I would say that Caracol is the best tasting lamb or sheep. I mean, obviously you're not eating them when they're lambs. They they grow, you, you, with heritage breeds, you actually have to grow them out longer. They have to be like a year plus old to, for for harvest. But anyway, I would and I would say Navajo churro would be number two. And um, yeah, Icelandic would be number three, as far as paste goes. Now, um, the milk, obviously you're gonna get more milk out of the goat, but you know, that little, that quart that you can get from them is, so creamy for things like you know cheeses um it's just out of and nothing nothing can compare but it's a lot of work because you know you're bringing that sheep up on the milk stand for you know a quart where my goat I bring her up and I'm getting a gallon right and of course they're not you can't milk them for as long right so right. so they're not a dairy sheep so you you can milk them and you you can for a while and you know be really, really happy with product, But they're really not a milk sheep. Now, as far as the fleece goes, I do my own shearing. Um, I shear on a stand, so I don't have to depend on anybody else. It's really difficult to find shearers, uh, qualified ones that'll come out for a small flock. You know, They wanna come out if you have 50 or something like that. So I just have to go on YouTube and teach myself. And all, with all of the fleece, I either process it myself, or I send it somewhere when I'm just overwhelmed. So the things that a caracool fleece are good for, uh, mainly carpet, weaving, felting is really good. Now, they are a double-coated breed, so as with uh, Icelandic, you can, with comb, separate the very fine undercoat from the, the tougher or the higher micron outer coat. And you can use that softer portion for for knitting and for next to skin, if you're willing to go through all that work. I don't have the time. <laughs> right.
0: When you send it to a mill, will they separate
1: it for you or do they usually just process it No, together? I don't know any mills that, that will separate uh, for you. Okay. Um, and I've done a lot of research in that area because I did have Icelandic and I thought well now how do they go do how they how do they manage this how do they separate the cell and the tog which is what they're called and uh well if you get an icelandic sweater from iceland you know and hand knit one you'll find that it's actually the mix of the two they don't bother with it anymore back in the day of, uh, you know before mechanization you know the, the during the winter that's what they would do you know they would spend their winter with their combs separating the two fibers and, you know, doing the next-to-skin stuff with, with the one portion, the undercoat, and then the, the outer clothing would be made, made from cigar hairs. So, yeah, I did quite a bit of research, and no, there are no mills that'll do that for you.
0: So do you have a lot of buyers
1: that will just buy your fleeces? You know, I haven't really concentrated on the fleece market, which is something I should be doing. So I did participate in the them to shave and then sold um, some fleece that way. But I'm sure if I really got into the marketing of it that I would do well, but I just haven't concentrated on it. And so that's something that I want to do in the future. But, you know, it's really tough when you work full time and then you have sheep to take care of full time and then you want a a third business marketing fleece. But, you know, I'm going to give it a shot. And like I said, I want to be able to at least break even at some point, right, <laughs> not, right. Not, not make it a total money pit, which it, which I think it is until I kind of find my feet and concentrate on this breed.
0: I, I can understand. You've got a lot going on and then trying to market it as well. It can be, <laughs> I can see where that's a little challenging. Now, I, love, I absolutely loved that felt it hat picture you sent me. Um, I actually told my husband about it and he's been telling me for a while now, that he really wants a felted like hunting hat, and I have not oh, learned. Yeah. I have not learned the felting craft yet. But what would
1: you say your favorite fiber craft is? I would have to say felting because it is it's the it's the quickest to your result, right? So when you're talking about um, making a knit sweater, you got to start with spinning the fiber, plying it, knitting it, and then the amount of time it takes to complete that sweater. Now with felting, you know, you felt a hat or or slippers, you'll be done in a few hours. You let it dry and then you can maybe needle felt some embellishments on there. So I don't know if you've researched a little bit into felting, but there's there's wet felting Mm -hmm. and then there's needle felting. And needle felting is so easy. You have these needles and you kind of mess up the fibers that way and Make it into a shape. You can make little animals and things, which are really cute. And you could churn out a little, a cute little animal, in a couple hours. So the the quick reward is there with felting. So that's where I started, and I have so many half finished projects, right? So so I have a loom that is I've I've only put half the warp warp on it, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I have all of this caracol that's been processed into thread and you know, and I, I got the warp measured and all this sort of stuff. And uh, it's still sitting there. I have to pull it, you know, you have to pull it through the, the heddles. And I'm still at that stage. And so the felting, the reward was there so quickly. And mm-hmm. so that's why I'm going to say it's, it's my favorite so far. But, you know, I'm going to go ahead with the weaving, um, the spinning and all of my other projects. But uh, like I said, felting has that quick reward aspect to it. That um, I'm, I'm like, okay. What else can we sell? You know, I can do this in an afternoon, and I can walk downstairs and show everybody. Right. So that's <laughs> that's the exciting thing about it.
0: Yes, I can see where that comes in because it is. I I absolutely love weaving, but it's just that whole setup is the longest process. Like once you get it set up, yes. it's like you can just fly through it, and it's so rewarding. But yeah, getting it set up just takes forever.
1: <laughs> it does. Yep.
0: Um, Would you like to, I know you said you had some history on the caracals. Would you like to go ahead and share that?
1: Yes, I would. So there's a reason that we have caracals in this country and and why caracals have spread throughout the world. And the reason is that back in the, the early 1900s, women wore fur coats. And one of the sources for the fur for those coats was, caracool lamb coat, like so caracool lambs are born with this very curly, soft coat, and, um, and it was highly prized in the fashion industry, you know, if you were a fashionista, you had to have one of these coats, one of these hats, you know, a muff at least, so, uh, and these sheep were only in one location, which is, I guess, current-day Turkmenistan, and they kept, quite a tight control over the export of these sheep. They wanted to control the market. So getting these sheep out of that region was sort of like getting silkworms out of China. So finally, someone from Germany was able to somehow get some breeding stocks and started in Germany with um, breeding these for the fur trade. And from there, I guess, Since the cat was out of the bag, uh, you know, they were willing to, the people of that region in Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, they were willing to sell them all over the world. So now this was, you know, the early 1900s, like the first export to the United States was actually 1908. And the last export was 1929. So you can imagine those poor animals who are... Accustomed to a very dry, arid climate, they're on this boat for forever. And then they're dropped off in, I think, Halifax or something was the first stop where they were quarantined forever. And Halifax is cold up in Canada, right? Right. A lot of them didn't survive. So the initial, every caracool in this country came from an initial breeding group of 87 survivors. So, and they were so highly priced. A a carapal ram at that time in 1911 cost over $1,000. Oh, my goodness. In 1911 money. Now, to put that into perspective, a Model T Ford was $700. That is crazy. So these were very highly priced animals um, because, you know, their product was so sought after. Now, because they only had you know, very few animals in the beginning, they started carefully crossbreeding some of them with Lincoln, Navajo Churro, and Cotswold sheep in order to, um, you know, make a bigger number of them so they could have a, a bigger breeding plan and also to improve some of the aspects of the coke. So after World War II, the fur trade, you know, nobody had money and, coats were out of fashion and that was all gone that was that went bust so now we still had these caracol sheep and the flocks were getting dispersed by the big fur farms and you know just enthusiasts were were buying them up and kept their little hidden flocks around the country fortunately because they could have just died out or the other thing that could have happened is they could have went the way of the tuna uh, now the Tunis was also a, a broad-tailed sheep they were valued for um, they needed the wool for World War II or was it World War One? World War I so they started crossing them with merinos and they didn't pay attention to the broad tail at all and so now if you see a Tunis they don't have a broad tail you would never know they did so we're kind of lucky that um, the caracool still still retains all of its characteristics even if there weren't some crossbreeding going on, the people that were breeding them, like the guys that were breeding them for fur, they didn't care whether we kept the broad tail or not. So we could have lost that. And we're lucky that the industry went away and enthusiasts got a hold of these sheep and kept the, the characteristics of the caracal, which is the broad tail. And of course, there, a characteristic is the uh, beautiful coat of the lamb but it's absolutely valueless now right but enthusiasts you know they want to see the retention of all of the characteristics of of the caracal sheep and we're really lucky today that we have we still have these and that and they have kept the characteristics of their homeland my breeding plan is to really make sure that I stick to what the caracal breed should look like So because there was not an emphasis on the tail, even though the tails are not gone, the broad tails, they've shrunk a little bit. So um, my breeding plan is to to, uh, breed the largest tails and breed rams that can breed those largest tails. So it's a little bit challenging for the ram to get under them. If you've ever seen one of the careful sheep tails, they are are huge. Mm And so I did a lot of research. I'm like how do they get under this tail? And I was able to find some videos from Iran, I think it was. And and it was amazing how these sheep did it. Now, in that region, I don't know if I was looking at caracool, but in that region the sheep generally unless they're crossbreds have the their fat in the tail. So the ram the rams have all different techniques. I've seen one use their knee to flip up that tail. I've seen another one use it to get get down on its knees and use its nose to flip up the tail oh my and goodness. and breathe. And so it takes a very special ram, and you have so you have to be very careful that you choose a ram for your flock that can naturally breathe. So there are some challenges, and people that are not selecting for the rams that can breed in the natural way by flipping the tail. You know, they'll, they'll tend to see that their larger tailed ewes won't get bred. Their smaller tailed ewes will get bred. And then you'll have, you know, you'll be constantly replenishing your flock with the smaller and the smaller and the easier to breed tail. So I, I want to turn that clock back. That's my big goal along with you know keeping all of the other characteristics of, of the carapool that I love so much. The carapool, aside from everything else, is the most elegant looking sheep out there. I mean, the, the head is so beautiful and refined, the legs are long, I, I look at a lot of pictures I've seen the valet, black nose, cute and everything, but nothing comes close to the elegance of this sheep. I, hands down the most elegant sheep, just a beauty to watch in my field. I just enjoy it so much.
0: Yes. um, When I was talking to Letty, she said, you know, just choose the sheep that you enjoy looking at the most. And I thought that was, that was so cute, but it's true. I mean, these sheep are going to be out in your field and you're going to be looking at them all the time. And you know a sheep that's that special to you and that you just enjoy looking at I thought that was that was great I agree agree
1: with her completely (laughs) (laughs) I just love looking at my sheep so um the other thing I wanted to mention is one of my challenges though when you when you talk about the beauty of your sheep and how much you love them one of the problems is and a challenge for me is wanting to keep them all Uh right so (laughs) (laughs) you have this beautiful little baby born and you know you have enough sheep to that that works with the amount of land that you have without overgrazing and everything and you're like oh just one more so I think that's one of my biggest challenges and and maybe a big challenge for sheep enthusiasts in general is that you just want to keep them all so (laughs) Yes, I can see that's that. That's something you really have to look at. It's always like, oh, I'll, just one more, just one more. And then you've doubled your flock and then, you know, you've pounded your, your field into dust and it's, and it's not good. And then the other thing is keeping to your breeding program. Like, that's another big challenge for me because I'll see a beautiful color that I'm like, oh, my God. This is, you know, my ram is, uh, is black and he has some gray and he looks very regal. And then I have a lamb born, a ram lamb born that's golden and just looks like something from Jason and Argonauts. I'm like, oh, but I don't need another ram. (laughs) (laughs) And this ram doesn't have such big tail. And I don't know, you know, and (laughs) and so, you know, sticking to your breeding plan and, and your goals and not making exceptions is really tough, too, because I could I could keep some animal in my flock with wonderful fleece, but the tail is not there. So um, I really have to, you know, stick to my guns and put that beautiful ram in someone else's program that, that you know, maybe has some really fat tail sheep that they can offset it with and, and uh, but is really concentrating on the fleece. Yeah, I, I can
0: see your best challenging. <laughs> I think I'm going to, I think that's going to be one of my challenges. Like when we get started and once lambing season comes around and everything, I I, I know me and my daughter, we're going to just want to keep them all.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's really, it's really tough. And I've been there uh, with my goats. you know, started off with two and then I'm like, oh, I'm not even milking them all. What am I doing? Yeah. Oh, I just had too many. But uh so for a new shepherd, you know, so sticking to your breeding plan, um, making sure you're not getting more sheep than your land can sustain. Um, those are two big ones. Other things that I would suggest for when you're choosing your sheep, you know, when you're choosing your breed, really do your research into each breed, maybe visit a farm. Mm-hmm. Um, get onto sheep Facebook pages and don't let that scare you away either because you'll get on sheep Facebook pages and people will be like, help, this happened, help, that happened. And you would think that, you know, everything that goes on in that Facebook page is going to be something that you're going to have to deal with. It's not true, but you're going to see the worst cases, mm-hmm. you know, along with the beautiful pictures, but, it, but you'll be able to recognize things when you get your own flock. So what does bottle jaw look like? You know, what does it mean when they're foaming at the mouth? Maybe it's nothing. You know, maybe it's something. What does bloat look like? You know, what does white muscle disease look like? And where does it come from? You'll, so what you'll do is you'll, someone will come up with something on Facebook and say, help, these are the symptoms. Then you might see people respond and then you can go and research on your own, you know, scholarly articles on that thing. I'm not saying you know, get all your advice from Facebook. (laughs) But but someone might say, that looks like bloat to me. And then you can go on University of Rhode Island or whatever and say, what does bloat look like? What can be done for it, et cetera.
0: I've gotten, you know, resources for books and everything, but that's another resource to do that to be able to go and look at other people's problems and then do the research before you actually have that
1: problem. That, I think that's great advice. Exactly. Um, it's, you know, the one thing that's unfortunate is it used to be that they allowed birthing videos on Facebook and and YouTube, and so you would actually see a veterinarian or a, sh- a shepherd deal with a malpositioned animal, you know, and how to pull the baby, and they don't allow those things anymore. So that's, that's a real shame. Those were real educational resources before they started blocking those I don't know and I I think I should start looking for another I guess outlet where you could you know view stuff you know the nitty-gritty stuff Mm -hmm. that you know YouTube and Facebook refuses to show because those were very very informative videos you know when you see well see this is here's a nose sticking out well that's wrong you have to either, either see a hoof and a nose or two hoofs well, even if it's two hoofs, you have to check if the head is in the right position. So there's so many people willing to just, you know, spread their li- their knowledge out of the just the goodness of their hearts and not even, you know, getting any payback for right. it. But it helps you so much. You know, they'll say, Okay, step one, push that head back in. Step two, find a hoof, you know. Be gentle, you know. You know, there were videos that were so so informative. They've all been taken down, which is a real shame. The other thing I would recommend is buying from a a tested herd. You don't want to get someone else's problems. Mm -hmm. So you want to buy from a top breeder and you want to ask to see their records. They should at least be choosing one or two sheep a year to test for at least these three things and probably a few others and that would be CL, OPP and Yonas. So your listeners can go and, and research all of that. These are incurable diseases. Not only are they incurable, but some of them will contaminate your pasture. And even if you get if you, even if you get rid of all of the livestock that have this illness and you bring loose livestock in, it's still on the ground. Oh wow. That's that's for example, c. l is one of those diseases, so it's very, very important that you ask to see the record. You know people will say, "Oh, clean flock, oh yeah, tested," because that's what they think they need to say to mm-hmm. cells to you right So say, "Oh, can you send me your test results from u c Davis or whatever sage labs or 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 the any number of other labs you know?" at least one and you know they can't counterfeit that so once you see something like that you know that will give you confidence and then you know when you bring them home you know keep them quarantined for 30 days don't don't let them out into your main field that could get contaminated you know keep them in an area that if they do exhibit something you can clean and disinfect that paddock pretty good and you'll be you know good to go for the next round of livestock so that's be a couple things. The other thing I would recommend is get yourself a mentor, but take it with a grain of salt. So, I'll I'll give you an example. You'll find a lot of old-time sheep breeders will worm on a schedule. Oh, when do you worm? Well, we worm after we shear or we worm before they give birth or something like that, and they'll worm all of them. Well, the research has come in that that is the best way to be left with worms in your flock that are completely immune to every single alphamic that we have. So bottom line is, you know, listen to the old timers, then do your research. I would recommend anybody that is thinking about getting sheep or goats or whatever, or already has them and hasn't heard of this. Go get your famancha certification from the University of Rhode Island. It's free and it's online.
0: Oh, that is awesome. I did not know that.
1: Yeah, and they will tell you exactly what the latest research is on worming. Worming is overdone, mm-hmm. but it's so important when you have an animal down. But you have to you have to do it right, you know. If and I'm not going to go into what the, all the video says, but it's a wealth of knowledge. Another really good place for worm info is it's wormx.com. Okay, highly recommended. Wormx.com. Learn any everything about worms because it's it's gonna be something that you're gonna have a constant fight with.
0: Right. That's awesome. I will definitely make sure to add the links to those in the show notes too. Before we go, would you like to share your website or a contact email?
1: So my website is hexenwaldbranch.com and that's H-E-X-E-N-W-A-L-D.com. You can also find me on Facebook at Hexenwald Branch. You can also You'll find me on Instagram at Hexenwells Ranch. My email address is my first name, Babette, at HexenwellsRanch.com, and my first name is spelled B-A-B-E-T-T-E. So, oh, and I and I welcome you know anybody that emails me and here to help. And I find a lot of you know shepherds are like that. You know they they really enjoy passing along their knowledge.
0: Yes, I've been so like greatly like surprised and so thankful because it is this everyone so far that I've talked to and met with is they're so welcoming it's like such a wonderful community of all these people raising sheep there's nobody that has been nasty or mean or anything and I'm sure there's (laughs) probably a few out there but so far I just feel like it's such an amazing community because everybody is so helpful
1: right absolutely yeah I don't think I've come across and I've been in this for a few years I don't think I've come across anybody like that. And I've been there for a, year, a few years.
0: So. <laughs> well, and, and I thank you so much for taking time out of your day to come on here and share your experience about raising caracal sheep and all of that awesome advice and those resources because I know I will definitely be checking them out.
1: Well, thank you for the opportunity.
0: Now, up next is an interview with Letty of Pine Lane Farm in Michigan. Hi, Letty. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today
2: it's a pleasure
0: well, now, Letty, I read that you've been raising caracol since nineteen eighty two and you're the co-author of the book The Shepherd's Rug, So if you could start off by sharing a little bit about yourself and how you got started raising caracoles,
2: My kids got interested in, in showing something at the at four h and um the beef cattle were a little bit too big for them, mm-hmm. Yeah, to, to handle and all that. So we went to a shepherd's uh, farm, and she had a and uh, they had a mixture of sheep there, and they had wood back in the woods, and hid her baby from us. And she was real shaggy, had really long fleece on her. But I really liked the way she acted. Um, I just liked the way that she looked, and the way she protected her baby. And um, I ended up buying her and her lamb which was a crossbred and uh, she was my very first caracal and I haven't looked back since. Had you raised other breeds of sheep before getting her? No she was my first and um, that was the only breed. Okay and what is your flock size right now? Um, I've had trouble with my heart since February so I've uh, I've sold quite a few of my old ewes and um, right now I'm down to eight. Okay. How would you describe their temperament? They're spirited and, and very smart. And
0: if you don't mind, could you describe what their wool is like and what it's best used for?
2: It's a rug wool. It's coarse and long and double coated. Okay. And would you like to talk
0: a little bit about the book that you co-wrote and The Shepherd's Rug and what it's all about?
2: Yes, we needed something to do with our, um, the wool from our sheep since we shear twice a year. Mm-hmm. So that's where the, the book came from, we uh, self published. I was working full-time when we decided to write the book. I retired so I could write. I did all of the writing and um, Anne Brown, my co-author, was really the, the artist of the group. <laughs> and we found a, a, a man here at, where I live who uh, said he would s- help us publish the book. And he was a retired photography professor at the University of uh, Western Michigan University. He took um, all of the photographs in the book. And what all is in
0: in the book? Like, what did you guys write about? Is it all about making rugs with the roving?
2: Yes, it's braiding the roving and then felting the roving in um, the wash machine and drying in the dryer. And uh, we were donated roving from different breeds of sheep. So we made rugs out of uh, several different breeds, and they're all in the book.
0: And were those all coarser breed sheep that you... Um, made the rugs out of? There were some uh, medium, medium, like the Jacob. Okay. So you said
2: you shear your sheep twice a year? Correct. What is their staple length usually? Um, Twice a year, it's probably six to eight inches. Okay. Now when raising your sheep, are you raising them primarily
0: for their wool or are raising them for their meat as well?
2: I'm using mostly for their wool, but the meat is probably probably the best tasting lamb you'll ever have. It's very sweet and uh, tender, and all the fat is in the tail. Yes, I saw that was
0: really neat that they um, carry a lot of fat in their tail. Yes, sometimes a tail can
2: weigh as much as ten pounds.
0: Oh wow! Now I read an article you wrote on your website that I thought was really wonderful, and it was about raising respectful rams. Can you share a little bit about that, like what to look for in a ram lamb's temperament and some tips on how to raise them
2: to respect you? Uh, don't baby them. Uh, never use bottle ram lamb. Just don't let them chew on your clothes or come up and nuzzle you. They need to respect you. hmm um the funny thing about rams is once you shear them or introduce a new ram to the group they will fight Um, so what we have to do is pin them up really close so that they get the smell of each other all over them Mm -hmm. sometimes it takes 24 hours sometimes 48 and then you can let them into a bigger um lot uh, and feed them and What would you
0: say is the biggest challenge you've had to overcome with raising sheep? Having to part with the ones that you really like. (laughs) And if you could give advice to a new shepherd, what would that be?
2: Find a breed that you like looking at. There are so many different breeds, so many different types of ear sets, wool covering, head shapes, etc. Just find one that you really like. And for me, it was the caracal. I love the way they look.
0: Now, were you a fiber artist or did you do any knitting or anything like that before you started raising the caracal?
2: Boy, that was a long time ago. That was almost four years ago. Uh, I don't think so.
0: So maybe they kind of introduced you into working with wool
2: then? Right, yes. And judging. I do a lot of judging. Okay. Yes, I judge. Uh, I used to judge a lot of sheep shows. But that, I don't do that so much anymore because uh, I'm getting too old, <laughs> but I do judge fleeces. Oh, okay. Now, I don't know too
0: much about sheep shows, but do the caracals, do they have their own category
2: when being shown? It, it depends. Um, at Maryland Sheep and Wool Festival, the uh, caracals have their own show, but that's about it.
0: And then when judging fleeces, how how does that work when you judge a fleece? Are they in their same, own category too? Or are they with different types of breeds also? Yeah, all,
2: all breeds of sheep. And they'll be separated into fine, medium, long, coarse, double-coated.
0: Okay. Well, can you share one of your favorite things about raising sheep or maybe a fa- favorite characteristic of the carefuls?
2: The most beautiful lambs in the world. They're born. There's... They are so shiny and black and silky. (laughs) Well, I thank you so much for
0: coming on here and sharing about them. Is there anything else that you would like to share that maybe I didn't ask you about the caracals? I I guess not. I think we've covered most of it. Well, I thank you so much. And I'll make sure on the show notes to um, link your website in case anybody would like to get in contact with you because you're from Michigan, correct? Correct. So if, anybody is near Michigan and is interested in raising the Caracol breed or wants to check them out, I'll make sure to leave your website so they can get in contact with you. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. Wow, it is so wonderful hearing from such amazing shepherdesses. I had a great time talking to both of these women and hearing their love for this breed. Babette had such great advice and resources that I will definitely be checking out. And I just love how for Letty, it all started with her falling in love with a caracal ewe, and now she has been raising caracals for almost 40 years. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening, and until next time, take care and keep creating with fiber.